these next two weeks, today and next week, we'll finish Two Ways to Live and then uh, How to Find Meaning in a Meaningless World. The series in which we've been engaged, and we had to take a week off last week because I was out of town, is Two Ways to Live, the title of the notebook that most of you have in front of you. I was out of town last week, and I've been asked by several people, um, are you going away again anytime soon? And you don't always know how to take that. Is this an, in anticipation? <laughs> when can we look forward to your absence again? <laughs> but whichever way you're asking the question, the answer is no, I'm not. Um, I sent an email to the church family on July 24th saying the next uh, six weeks or so are going to be very choppy for me and sort of apologizing for that because it did work out more choppy than I expected. But that's over with, and I am here today and for the remainder of the year and through the first half of next year until it gets choppy again next, next summer. So you're pretty much stuck with me for the uh, remainder of this year and into the first part of next. But we took last week off because I was gone on the Two Ways to Live series. What is Two Ways to Live? It is a training program for giving people the gospel. And why are we taking these several weeks to go through material like this? Let me remind you. It's because the purpose of our church, as stated in our mission statement, is to help people learn about God, love him and others, and live for his purpose. Those three things. Learn about God, love him and others, live for his purpose. And each of the ministries of our church are designed around those three major objectives. Help people learn, love, and live. But if people are going to learn about God, that begins, starts with a relationship with God initiated through the message of the gospel. So if we are a church committed to helping people learn about God, then it follows that we have to be a church that is committed to giving the gospel to as many people as we can. That necessitates then that we train our folks to give that message, to know the content of the message and then learn the skills of giving the message to those in their circle of influence. And because then we are a church committed to helping people learn about God, we're committed to training people in giving the gospel. Now, why this particular series then? Because if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we've had other training programs for evangelism. Some of you participated last summer when I went through uh, Living Proof, an evangelism uh, series. Some of you went with us to a seminar a few years ago called You Can Tell It, Evangelism Training. Some of you have gone through Discovery Book 4, which is part of our Wednesday Community Institute program. And Book 4 is devoted entirely to uh, discovering how to share your faith. Twelve lessons devoted to that. So many of you have been through those materials that we've offered, and here's yet another one. Why? Well, as I've said in weeks past, it's because there is not a one-size-fits-all approach to giving the gospel. And exposing people to a number of methods, as long as they are proper methods, of giving the gospel is, is a helpful thing. Some fit your personality or my personality better than, than others. So we try to give exposure to a, a wide number of methods for giving the gospel. And this one commends itself in a couple of particular ways. Two ways to live is a helpful approach to giving the gospel because, one, it is God-centered as opposed to man-centered. I've told you in the last few weeks that there are a number of methods of giving the gospel that are man-centered. And I mentioned one in particular that starts with this premise, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
So rather than starting with God and then moving to our broken relationship with God, as we will see Two Ways to Live does, it starts with you and uh, the wonderful plan that you need for your, for your life. It starts with a man-centered approach. So this commends itself because it is God-centered. The other reason that this is a helpful uh, curriculum for evangelism is that it's laid out in a contextual, historical fashion. Let me explain. It's laid out in a way that puts the gospel in its context, given the history that the Bible lays out. And so it doesn't just start with Jesus came and he died on the cross. But rather it starts with God creating us, going back to the beginning. And then what went wrong after God's good creation, the entrance of sin into his world, the pronouncement of judgment by God, and the consequences that go with that. And then with that background, now what Jesus came to do makes sense. And so it lays it out in that logical, historical, contextual fashion. And for those reasons, then, we've been going through two ways to live. What is two ways to live, then? It involves six major points giving the content of the gospel to a co-worker, a family member, a neighbor. Those six points are given on page number nine of your participant's workbook, page number nine. Page number nine. And they are listed as God is the creator. It starts with God's creation. And God made man, humanity, to rule, but rule under his, the creator's, authority. The second point of the presentation is that man rebels, wishing to run things his own way. The Bible's word for that is is sin. The third point of the two ways to live presentation is that God judges that rebellion. But God doesn't leave it at that, thankfully. God not only judges, but in his love, he sends Jesus to die as the covering, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Receiving then the judgment that belongs to us. The fifth of the six points is that in his power, God raises Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is going to rule as Adam was designed to rule, thus bringing God's plan back into uh, back into uh, fulfillment. And then the final point is this all leaves us then with a choice. We can continue to go our own way and rebel against God and live as our own authority, or we can submit ourselves to God's authority, receiving the gift that Jesus Christ makes available to us. So the two ways to live six points. And in order to help you give that content to someone in a relatively easy way, they offer memory or mnemonic aids to do that. And those aids are little pictures. And so those of you who can't read a book without pictures, you are in luck. OK, you've got two ways to live and it's got pictures on pages 12 and 13. And they recommend that you memorize this or something akin to it to help you remember it one but also so that you can present it but then to help someone else see it and you can see it is extremely simple each of those pictures corresponds those six figures corresponds to the six points made on page number nine so each of the six points of the presentation has a memory aid a little figure but it also has a verse that goes with it as well that corresponds to the, the point of that figure. 
So God is the creator. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 is the verse that goes with that. You see it on pages 12 and 13. And then humanity rebels. Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 is the passage that goes with that. And God judges is the third point. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. But that God sends Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins is 1 Peter 3.18. That's the verse that goes with that, that fourth box. And so there is a figure, there is a verse that corresponds to each of the six points. Then that is the two ways to live outline. Now, we'll just take a couple of minutes here as we've done. I always do this with fear and trembling because I'm going to ask who, who memorized the verse from two weeks ago. That was part of the assignment. And that verse would have been Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Is there one righteous among God's people who would have memorized Hebrews chapter 9 and verse, and verse 27 in the, in, in the full two weeks that we have had since the last time? Who will, who, yes, I see that hand. That's my evangelist speaking. <laughs> Please hold it up for everyone to see. Somebody over here? Yeah? Go ahead. Tony. All right, go ahead. Okay, I'll buy that. That's good enough. <laughs> yes, Hebrews 9.27. Some of us know that from the King James, so these are NIV. It's a little hard for us to break. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, says the King James. But uh, uh, Hebrews 9.27 speaks of the fact that we will all die, and then the inevitable sure promised judgment will follow hebrews 9:27 thank you tony does anybody remember revelation 4:11 revelation 4:11 go ahead bonnie no i'll try all right anybody all right let me uh, let me encourage you to uh, memorize the verses and if you were to if you were to do that then you might be able to stumble your way through the two ways to live material which in turn might allow you to stumble your way through a presentation of the gospel, which in turn might make this whole enterprise worthwhile. <laughs> Other than that, you could just forget about it, really. All right? So, Revelation 4.11, Romans 3.10-12, through 12, Hebrews 9.27, and then the verse for next week is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Okay? All right. So six points, six verses corresponding to those, those points, six figures to help you memorize that. And then if you'll turn in your participant manuals to session number four. Session number four. And that's on page 33, session number four, page 33. Session number four deals with boxes four through six of the six-point outline. Session three, it focused in on making sure we understand the first three boxes. God creates, man rebels, God judges. And now boxes four through six, God sends Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. God raises Jesus from the dead. And then that face leaves us with a, with a choice. Boxes four through six, okay? So we want to make sure that we understand those remaining three of the six boxes. Now, what I'd like to do is take a few moments to talk about the relationship actually between boxes three and four or statements three and four of the six point presentation. 
What are the six statements? God creates. One. Two, man rebels. Three, God judges. Four, God sends Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. Five, God raises Jesus from the dead. Six, we're all faced then with a, with a choice, two ways to live, right? All right. Number three of those six is that God judges. God judges. And number four is that God sends Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. What's the relationship between those two? I want to make sure that we understand the relationship between God's judgment on the one hand and the sending of Jesus in his love as a sacrifice for our sin. Okay? We're going to look in just a bit at Romans chapter 3 in your New Testament. But before we do, let me remind you of a story in your Bible that, with which many of you are familiar. You remember the story of Abraham in your Old Testament, first part of your Bible. And in Genesis chapter 12 in your Bible, just 12 chapters into the beginning of the Word of God, God makes a promise to this man, Abram. And he says to Abram, I am going to make you a great nation. And I am going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a seed, and there's going to be a people that are going to come from you, your descendants, right? And so we call this the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a contract, a promise, a covenant to this man, Abraham, at the beginning of your Bible. Now, this promise that Abraham makes is God's fulfillment of the promise that he made in chapter 3 and verse 15 that I put on the screen as part of the message this morning. Where God told the serpent that I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And there is going to come one in the future through the seed of the woman who is going to be the solution to the problem that sin has caused. And then God calls this man Abram. And he says, Abram, it's through your descendants that this seed is going to come. And that's the reason, as you read through your Old Testament, you got all these begats and -and so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. You say, why is that in there? Just to show how dedicated I am to keep trudging ahead? Is is this a test? (laughs) No, that stuff actually matters because God has said this is going to come through your descendants and he keeps track. And so I'm going to send the solution through the seed and the seed is going to come through your descendants, Abraham. And many of you then know the story then of the descendants of Abraham. Abraham is childless for many, for many, many years. And in, but God has made this promise. You're going to have this promised seed. And Abraham, father of the faithful, by the way, is faithless at one point. And he says, this is not going to happen. And what does he do? He has a child by one of his servant girls, Hagar. And they have a child, Ishmael. And this is not the promised child. But Sarah, his wife, is really old at this point. And Abraham just says, this is not going to happen. But, of course, God has a great sense of humor. And at 90, she conceives and bears Isaac. And why is he called Isaac? Because the name means laughter. Because that's pretty much all you can do at this point. (laughs) He's just like the punchline to this whole thing. 
And so you have Ishmael on the one hand and you got Isaac on the other hand. And these guys from the very beginning are going to uh, be at odds with one another. Ishmael, the father of our Arab friends. And Isaac, the father of our Jewish friends. And it seems like that just continues, doesn't it, to this day? So you have the promise of a seed through Abraham and God's bringing it about in this miraculous way in the advanced years of his wife, Sarah, and the birth of Isaac. But then God says to Abraham, do you guys remember this? Abram, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him. Remember that? And Abraham takes the child early in the morning and he goes to Mount Moriah to do this very thing. But instead of having to follow through with this, do you remember what happened? That Abraham saw a ram in the thicket and God has provided a lamb in the place of Isaac. Now, what, what do you see pictured there, do you think, early on? That the wages of sin is death. That there is sacrifice because of sin. But here in this story of Abraham and his promised son Isaac and God providing a lamb in the place of, that's important, in the place of Isaac. You see a picture of God ultimately providing a lamb in the place of those who should suffer for their own sin. And so in the story of Abraham and Isaac, you see an early picture of this. And throughout then your Old Testament, you have the Old Testament sacrificial system, the offering of lambs over and over again for the sins of the people. But the Bible tells us in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and of goats and of these animals can never fully take away sin. So what, or more importantly, who is going to do that? And that brings you then to the coming of Jesus. And in John chapter 1 and verse 29, which we will see as part of our series through the book of John during the 930 hour. John chapter 1 and verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus near the river and he says to the crowd gathered there, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who is the Lamb. But what is the Lamb going to do? The lamb is going to take the sin and the judgment that belongs to us. And he's going to take it upon himself. And in that, you see in one unbelievable act, both the love and the justice of God at exactly the same time. You see the justice of God. Because it is right it is just for God to punish sin. And as a matter of fact, it is not a matter of whether sin will be punished. It is how the sin will be punished. Because God has no choice but to punish sin. Did you know that? He has no choice. You say, what do you mean he has no choice? He's God. He can do whatever he wants. We have to throw one disclaimer into that God can do whatever he wants thing. Because there are certain things that God never wants to do. Simply because of who he is. 
Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 in your Bible says this. Numbers 23, 19. God cannot lie. Why? Because he's incapable. God can't lie. It's not that God sometimes wants to lie and just doesn't. God's constitution, simply because of his nature, because of who he is, he cannot lie. And because of God's holy nature, his holiness, he cannot overlook sin. Sin will be judged. Sin will be punished. Guaranteed because of the very character of God himself. So you got sin needs to be judged. It needs to be punished. On the one hand, it must. It will be. But then you've got this same God who is not only absolutely pure and holy and therefore must judge sin, but you've got this God who is loving and merciful and gracious. And he doesn't desire to see anyone die. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the Bible says. And so how does God harmonize both of these? On the one hand, he's absolutely pure and holy and he will judge sin. On the other hand, he is loving, gracious, merciful. And he does it in this marvelous thing of sending his son, God himself, come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, to bear the judgment that belongs to me, belongs to you. And in his love, Jesus takes the judgment. And your New Testament tells us that. Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let me uh, set in context for you, if I might, Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans has 16 chapters in it. And it is all about the gospel. The 16 chapters of the book of Romans are about the gospel. How do I know this? Because in chapter 1 and verse 16, you are given, we are given the theme of the book of Romans. Paul says in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of, do you remember, the gospel. And here's why I'm not ashamed, because it is the power of God for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Who does Jew and Gentile, those two categories, who all does that include? That would be everybody. To everyone who believes, the gospel is the power of God, Jew and Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God, verse 17, is made known, is revealed. A righteousness that is from first to last, verse 17 says. Those two verses are the theme of the entire 16 chapters of the book of Romans. It's about the gospel, the power of God for everyone who believes. And then Paul, who wrote these 16 chapters, commences, begins telling us why the gospel is necessary. So in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1, he says, For, because, the wrath of God. Some of you have that in front of you. Chapter 1 and verse 18. Am I making that up? It's there, isn't it? For the wrath of God is being revealed, is being made known 
against all the ungodliness, the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, hold down the truth by their ungodliness. So here's why the gospel is necessary, because God's anger, God's wrath abides upon all people who suppress his truth by virtue of their sin. And lest we think that that only includes some people, Paul goes on to explain. And so, verses 19 and following, he says, everybody knows about God, but they reject the information about God that they have. Therefore, end of verse 20, they are without excuse. He goes on to talk about the debauchery that results from this rejection of the knowledge of the God who made us. We see that debauchery taking place in our culture right now. And he say, well, okay, maybe that's just for the Jew and not for the Gentile. And he just wants to make sure you understand. No, it's for all of us. It's all the stuff the Gentiles do. Chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Chapter 1 ends in verse 32. And then you go to chapter 2. And he begins talking about the Jew and, and the fact that he had, he had been given the law. And what about the Jew? And he concludes the same thing. He has not kept the law that God has given him. Therefore, he is guilty before God as well. In chapter 3, at the beginning of chapter 3, someone will ask the question, well, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? And he says there's lots of advantages. They were given the very word of God and so forth. But they, like the Gentiles, have not fulfilled the requirements that God has given. And just to make sure nobody misses the point, You get this catalog beginning in verse 9 of chapter 3. It says, well, then what are we going to conclude from all of this? There is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. And then all the way down through verse 18 of Romans chapter 3, you have this catalog of how our tongues and our feet and every part of us is used in rebellion against God. And so what do we conclude? That all are sold under sin, everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. And in verse verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, it says, before the law of God, everyone is going to be silent. Nobody's going to have an excuse before God. That's pretty quiet in here now, and I'm waiting for either some snoring or it's just because, man, you go through that catalog, that is, that is just very convicting, isn't it? You just see that laid out, and that's, I'm in there, you're in there. The Gentiles are in there, the Jews are in there, everybody's in there. God has nailed this thing absolutely. No wiggle room. Everybody's going to be silent before God. And if God puts a period, now hear this, if God puts a period at the end of verse 20 of Romans chapter 3, he would be absolutely righteous and just. He could do that. Did you know that? And he could say, I can destroy every one of you and be absolutely just and righteous. But thanks be to God, the story continues. In verse 21 of Romans chapter 3 is one of several great 
contrasts in your Bible. Now, you know what I mean by a a contrast. There's this on the one hand, but there's this on the other hand. And when I call it a great contrast, that doesn't do it justice. This is an unbelievable contrast. At the beginning of verse number 21 of Romans chapter 3, that is the most blessed three-letter word you have ever seen. In contrast to everything that's gone before, from Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 all the way to chapter 3 and verse 20, with an indictment against every last one of us, but, praise be to God. On the other hand, notice verse 21, but now a righteousness from God. Wow. And guess what? I need the righteousness from God, because he's already told me I don't have any righteousness of my own, right? So if there's going to be any righteousness, guess where it's going to come from? From God. But now a righteousness not from me, not from my good works, not from keeping the law, not from any of that stuff, because I can't do it. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. To which the law and the prophets testify. The stuff in your Old Testament was all pointing to this. And it goes on. This righteousness from God, verse 22, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's chapter 1 and verse 16 now come full circle. What was chapter 1 and verse 16? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to everyone who believes. And how do I get righteousness before God? By believing in Jesus Christ. Verse 22. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, as he's already proven, for all, Jew and Gentile alike, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But just like all have the same problem, all have the same solution. Verse 24, they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now notice verse 25. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. If you have a King James Version of the Bible, it says there that God presented him as a propitiation for our sins. And the NIV says sacrifice of atonement. That word propitiation means an appeasing of the anger, the wrath of God towards sin. Now, where's that anger come from? Chapter 1 and verse 18. Remember it? The wrath, the anger of God is being made known against all the ungodliness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That wrath, that anger, that justice of God that burns against sin and will be satisfied is either going to be satisfied by you and me personally or by God in his love giving us an alternative. And God presented Jesus 
as a propitiation, a satisfaction of his wrath, his anger against sin. Now, why did he do this? Paul goes on to tell us why he did it. He did this, verse 25, to demonstrate his justice. Remember, we said God is holy. He's absolutely holy. Sin will be punished. He's a just God. It's not just that he will punish it. He has to punish it. And he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, this punishment is being meted out in its full fury. But it's being done, verse 26, to demonstrate his justice at the present time so he could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So in Jesus Christ, in this one unbelievable act, on the cross, God is demonstrating, showing his absolute justice against sin, punishing it to the full in Jesus Christ. So his wrath is satisfied, his judgment is satisfied, but he's also showing his love and his mercy. Because he's provided someone else to do it. All on the cross. And so what do we do? Well, you either receive the gift that he offers because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Or you pay for your sins yourself. And how long do you think that will be? You say, you know, I'm only 28. I'm only 45. I don't know exactly how many sins I've committed, but I'm thinking it's under 100,000. And you would think I'd be able to pay for those in some time less than, say, eternity. I mean, I committed these sins in time. There's a finite number of them. Why am I going to be punished for eternity? Hear this. God doesn't calculate sins by their number. God calculates sin, calculates sin by its nature. And sin is cosmic treason against an eternal, infinitely holy God. And that's why it requires an infinite payment. But Jesus died once. Yeah, but you know who Jesus was? He's God. And he was sinless. And I cannot fathom the depths of the anguish that is expressed in the statement of Jesus from the cross when he cries out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there is infinite justice going on. In the person of the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. For you and for me. And so we're faced with a choice. Your sin is going to be paid for. It's going to be paid for by you or by me personally in the eternal penitentiary of the damned called hell. Or it will be paid 
by the sacrifice Jesus made for us. How do I get that? Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. The wages of sin is death. Verse 23, I'm sorry. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how do I get that? Well, I get it when I receive the gift that Jesus offers in his love in dying for my sin and your sin on the cross. And it is presented to you as a gift. And you receive it. Now, I go through that for this reason. One, I want you to see the relationship between points three and four in your six-point outline that is part of two ways to live. In God's judgment, he punishes sin. He must punish sin. In his love, he sends Jesus, that's point four, as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. And the cross satisfies both of those, the justice of God and the love of God at the same time. So I tell you that so that you'll know how this all fits together. And the better you know it, the more you'll appreciate it and live for the God who gave himself for you, I trust, but also be able to present it to other people. But here's the other reason. I'm hopeful that when we pray in five minutes and we're dismissed, that there'll be some people here who will receive the gift. Because my guess is, and I'm not a prophet, I can't see people's hearts, only God can do that, but my guess is there are people here right now who have heard that for the first time. And your heart is saying, I need that. I'm a sinner. God's judgment is upon me. I need the covering that Jesus has, has provided. And so we're going to give you opportunity to receive Christ as Savior. Now, what happens when you do that? Well, you could say, I get fire insurance. This is a great policy. It cost me nothing. It was a free gift. And now no, no hell to worry about. And that's all true. However, the Bible says that this Jesus who died on the cross is the fifth point in the six-point outline. God raised him from the dead. And when God raised him from the dead, what did he demonstrate? He demonstrated that not only was he a great person that just happened to never sin, but he proved who he really is. He is Lord and he is God. So when you receive Jesus and his gift, you cannot separate the gift from the giver. And that's why we say, receive Christ. Because then you receive the Savior and you bow before the Lord and you give your life to him. And here's what the Bible says happens. And the book of Romans, as a matter of fact, continues saying this. If you were to go to Romans chapter 8, you would see the very first verse that says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen to that. But then it goes on to talk about the active work of God in the lives of those people that he has saved. Those people that he has bought with his own blood. 
And it says in Romans chapter 8 that he has given us his spirit. He calls it the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I am now not just somebody with a life insurance policy on a piece of paper. But I am now a child of the true and living God, brought into his family, possessing his Holy Spirit, and wanting now with every fiber of my being to please him with my life. So it's not just fire insurance. The fire insurance is great. But there's a change that takes place in the one who receives the gift. Because he now becomes related to the giver. He's your father. You're his child. Almost done. But you say, you know, I don't know. What else is he going to want from me? And the response of God to that would be this. You don't barter with me. When you come and you receive the gift and the giver, then you place yourself in his hands. And you say, Lord, whatever you want from me, that's what I'll do. And then you begin a journey step by step where he begins to tell you, this is what I want. This is what I want my people to be like. You, you go to, say, a church. And you learn the book. And you learn what God has said about what he wants from those who name his name and who are his children. You go, you know, that scares me, though. I mean, am I going to become weird? Look at the rest of us. <laughs> that ought to scare you. And there's a sense in which, yeah, you will be, you will be weird, but in the best sort of way. Because now you'll be living for the purpose for which you were made. Not the replacement you've been pursuing. And so you come to this good God, a good God who made a good world. That has been messed up by sin. And this good God has done all that's necessary to correct what has gone wrong by the entrance of sin into his world. And he offers it to you. The gift and the giver. We're going to pray. And as I always do, I invite those who have come to Jesus to thank Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Thank you for that free gift. Thank you for giving it to me. Thank you for the difference it's made in my life. Lord, forgive me for not being appreciative, living a life of gratitude for all that the Son of God has done for me. And resolving, Lord, I'm going to move from this place to serve you in gratitude for all you've done. And then there are people, as we bow, who need to receive Jesus right now. You say, you know, I've never prayed in my life. It's okay. This will be the best prayer you ever prayed. If you sincerely mean it from your heart to God, you pray to him silently from your heart to God in your own words. But you tell God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve your punishment. I believe that Jesus took the punishment that belongs to me. I ask you to save me, rescue me from the punishment that belongs to me. Forgive me, and I give my life to you. I want to follow you. As I learn of you, I will follow you. And he promises, he who calls upon the name of who? The Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Father, I thank you that I can come before your throne right now and call you in truth, Father. 
that I can say that I am your son. Lord, I know why I have been adopted into your family and that I am your son. It is not because of me. It is not because of any good that I have done or can do. It is simply because of your mercy that you saved me. I thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. I thank you for his accomplishment on the cross, bearing the full weight of the punishment of sin, demonstrating your justice in that one unbelievable act, but also because it was the sinless, perfect Son of God, God having come in the flesh, you demonstrated your love for those that you have made. Lord, I thank you that you offered that to me, that your Holy Spirit moved upon my heart so that I could see what I needed and I embraced not only the gift but the giver. I thank you that then you've adopted me into your family. I have your Holy Spirit. I have the promise of eternity with you. And all of this is because of your mercy, the good news, the gospel. I pray that brothers and sisters right now, having been reminded of that, are renewing their gratitude to you so that we'll go forth from this place and we will with joy live for the Savior who owns us by right of being our maker and bought us with his blood. And then, Lord, I pray for those who may have heard this for the first time. And right now, Lord God, I pray that your spirit is moving on the hearts of people. That you're drawing them to yourself and to the Savior who died for them. And that though they don't know what this exciting journey will entail in the months and years ahead, they are with empty hands coming to the one who alone can give them salvation, forgiveness, and meaning in their lives. And they are trusting you completely. I pray that you will help them then to take the first steps of faith in following the Lord before whom they bow their hearts in this moment. In just a moment, we're going to conclude in prayer. But any of you who have prayed to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and bow before him as your Lord, this is what I'm asking you to do. I shake everybody's hand when we leave. And I'll shake your hand, and I'm going to ask you to let me know that you've done that so that we can get together and talk about your first steps of faith, okay? Father, thank you for this Lord's Day and for the blessings of being able to, to be together with your people, sing praise to your name, and learn from your word. Go with us now as we serve you in the mission field that is the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.